break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out January 6th. 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show and today is January 6, 2022, so we want to talk here on the show today about January 6 of 2021, the one-year anniversary of the attack on the Capitol by a right-wing mob. As we reach the one-year anniversary of the January 6th mob attack on the seat of the United States Congress, there are essentially two mainstream reactions. The somber intonations of the Democrats lamenting the decline of America's supposedly sterling democracy and the dismissal from conservatives who present the event as simply a gathering of patriots that got a little out of hand. Both approaches miss the mark and fail to grasp the context. Let us say at the outset that January 6th offers the perfect prism to see that there is a dangerous right wing threat rising to offer its own violent solutions to various global crises. And further, that the response of the centrist so-called liberal Democratic Party to both those crises and how to deal with the fallout is itself part of the problem. A lot's being lost in the mainstream commentary about the Capitol mob by focusing too heavily on just those individuals who were there at the Capitol and the event in isolation. But January 6th can only be properly viewed as part of the larger attempt to overturn the election. It's really important to recognize that this is indeed the context, the broader, quote unquote, stop the steal movement. January 6th was part and parcel of a campaign led by the leadership and donors of one of the major political representatives of the wealthy in the United States involving the president himself to overturn the results of the election based on clear and demonstrable lies rooted in racism in order to impose an extreme right wing anti-working class political program on the country. Whatever faults and defects exist in the American system, nothing about what the January 6th Stop the Steal movement was about would make it better or even leave it the same. It would, without a doubt, make all of the major faults and defects of America worse, from democratic rights to poverty, worse in every respect. The faults and defects are, however, critically important. The Democrats have gleefully participated in the multi-decade neoliberal turn of scorched-earth pro-corporate policies that have driven us to what feels almost like a civilizational collapse. Using their role as the so-called good guys to eviscerate, neutralize, and co-opt all serious opposition to these same policies, creating the very space by which the right-wing threat we've mentioned has gained a head of steam. The real question in front of us from January 6th is whether or not those who want to see a pro-people, not pro-profit change in this country and the world will internalize these lessons and fight back. The history of similar moments from Reconstruction to the anti-New Deal business plot teaches us that only the independent action of those most affected by these hard-right crusaders can turn the situation around. 
But let's turn to some of the details to reinforce some of the points that we're making here, because to really understand January 6th, we do have to understand it in the proper context. The centerpiece of the whole thing is the idea that the election was somehow stolen by hordes of poor working class people of color, manipulated by liberal billionaires and perhaps aided by Venezuela and China. Yes, that is, in fact, the actual set of arguments being made by the Stop the Steal forces. And they center on accusations about places like Phoenix, Detroit, Philadelphia and Atlanta, where the racially charged nature of the accusation stands out in clear relief. In Arizona, for instance, Maricopa County, where the main recount happened, isn't even the county where the most, and still tiny, number of potential election issues were flagged. And, of course, numerous recounts have shown there was no voter fraud of any significant sort anywhere. But the level of absurdity in some of these recounts reached just massive levels. In Arizona, for instance, the private company hired by state Republicans to look into whether the election was fraudulent or not was actually examining ballots under a black light to see if they had traces of bamboo to make sure that masses of ballots had not been shipped pre-marked from Asia. And not for nothing, that recount ultimately found that Biden got more votes and Trump fewer votes. Georgia has had three recounts, all, of course, showing the result was the same. Biden won. In Wisconsin, Trump's campaign paid $3 million for a recount in Milwaukee and Madison, Democratic strongholds. And what was the result? Biden still won. These results are not surprising, given that there has never been any evidence of even infinitesimally significant voter fraud in U.S. elections in the post-civil rights era. Just for example, a massive study of one billion ballots cast at every level of the electoral process from 2000 to 2014 found only 31 credible cases of voter fraud. One billion ballots, 31 credible cases. So past and present, it's an absurdity. Of course, it's not random that this is happening. The phantom fear of voter fraud is what drives the efforts in dozens of states to restrict access to voting, restrictions that primarily target working class people of color, but whose barriers also target many low income whites. Why do this? Why try to overturn an election so desperately? Why an alleged democracy try to restrict people's right to vote? Well, simple. The extreme right wing policies of Trump and the Republican Party are mainly very unpopular, and more progressive policies are certainly more popular. Take Georgia, for instance, where 74% of likely voters support paid family leave and also 74% of them support higher taxes on the wealthy to pay for it. And this is a state where 58% of Republicans supported the original $3.5 trillion Build Back Better plan proposed by President Biden. The point here is, even in places considered Republican strongholds, supporters of extreme right-wing policies are potentially in trouble at the ballot box if any appreciable number of people who don't agree with them show up to vote. So they want to limit the ability of those people to get to the polls. And it isn't just a right-wing agenda in the abstract, but in its true meaning, which is a hyper-capitalist agenda. Trump moved aggressively to implement regulatory changes designed to degrade the quality of workers' lives, making sure people worked longer hours without overtime, that tip workers could be forced to work more untipped hours at a sub-minimum wage, endorsing misclassification schemes that promote poverty wages, allowing the homicidal increases in line speeds demanded by meatpacking bosses, performing thousands of fewer OSHA investigations than even the Bush administration, allowing the unlimited dumping of industrial poison into the water and air, massive tax cuts for the ultra rich, reducing oversight and making more potentially dangerous medicines more available, and pursuing across-the-board reductions in funds to house the homeless, feed the hungry, and educate the young. 
So again, with policies like these, it's Seems fairly clear why you would want to throw up as many hurdles as possible for people who would be affected by these policies when it comes to their right to vote or protest and so on and so forth. And make no mistake, the vote challenge and January 6th were not some fly-by-night efforts here, but funded from, if you will, the very top. For instance, Representative Scott Perry, who introduced Trump to a Justice Department lawyer willing to steal the election. Well, his top donor in the past election cycle was the House Freedom Fund and its associated super PAC. Billionaire Dick Uline gave the House Freedom Action Super PAC $1 million in 2021. He also donated $800,000 to Tea Party Patriots, which was a January 6th rally sponsor. And his five-year donation total to that group, by the way, was $4.3 million. He's also the largest donor to the second largest donor of Scott Perry, who is the Club for Growth, an ultra-capitalist pressure group who cashed a $27 million check from Dick Uline recently. House Freedom Action's largest donor, though, was not Dick Uline. It was the investment manager, Foster Freeze, who is on the board of Turning Point USA, which organized buses to the January 6th events, and who have also been on the receiving end of donations from Home Depot co-founder and billionaire Bernie Marcus and the Koch brothers. There's also some more direct subsidy coming from the commanding heights, so to speak. The Center for Responsive Politics notes about their investigation into the financial backers of the congressional supporters of an electoral college challenge that, quote, the list of top PAC donors to the GOP objectors is similar to the list of top PAC donors to all candidates. That's unsurprising because business PACs donate most of their money to incumbents in both parties, particularly those in safe seats, like many of the Republican objectors. And in terms of those... Donors number two through eight are the American Bankers Association, the National Association of Realtors, Coke Industries, AT&T, the National Auto Dealers Association, Comcast, and the National Beer Wholesalers Association. Number two through eight in the donors to those Republicans in Congress supporting a challenge to the election. The Republican Attorneys General Association was also a major sponsor of January 6th and obviously a major player in establishment Republican politics, regularly receiving big donations from Fortune 500 companies. However, their biggest funding as of late seems to come from the Judicial Crisis Network, a shadowy group that funnels tens of millions of dollars on behalf of other anonymous donor groups to right-wing causes. And the Dark money arm of the Republican Attorneys General Association was involved enough in the January 6th events to send out robocalls calling for, quote unquote, patriots to show up to the Capitol. It also seems that a hefty donation for the January 6th operations came from Julie Jenkins Fincelli, who's the heiress to the Publix grocery store fortune. And apparently she made that donation at the urging of Alex Jones, facilitated by Trump fundraiser Caroline Wren who herself has given seven-figure donations to Trump and who also roped in Women for America First, the headline sponsor of the January 6th rally, which also happens to be pretty opaquely funded. Nothing other than this kind of high-level support could explain the other glaring reality of January 6th, one the Democrats have totally whitewashed in their attacks on Trump, and that is that the public officials charged with security engineered a low-key security presence, despite the clear reality that many of those coming were coming with either the intent or preparedness to do battle. On January 3rd, the Capitol Police had an intelligence report warning of potentially violent attacks on Congress itself. On January 4th, 300 law enforcement officers got on a call with the National Capital Region Threat Intelligence Consortium, 
the main coordinating body for security of the capital region. The summary of that call stated, quote, reporting indicates a significant number of individuals plan to or are advocating for others to travel to Washington, D.C. to engage in civil unrest and violence. In fact, they thought it was so serious, they actually set up a hashtag on a private FBI communication service to be able to communicate about what was happening in D.C. on January 6th if it turned into a, quote, mass casualty event. On January 5th, the day after this call, the FBI had an intelligence report out warning of people coming to D.C. not to protest, but for, quote, unquote, war. Despite all of this, though, more or less nothing was done, despite the fact that violence and large crowds were expected. Only roughly 400 officers were at the Capitol, most without any sort of crowd control equipment of note. One in four Capitol police officers were never even at the Capitol. And again, this is when they thought tens of thousands of people were coming. I've protested at the Capitol more times than I can remember, and I can never remember any roughly comparable event of thousands of people that did not have more security, despite having nothing like the type of open calls for violence and fighting all over social media in the lead up, like January 6th. And even more to the point we're making here on January 4th, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, despite all the information out there, made it clear the D.C. government wanted less, not more security. And just a few days before that, had made sure to state her request for more National Guardsmen was simply a traffic measure. The only possible explanation for this is that the January 6th events were being organized by a major coalition, including the president, dozens of top Republican politicians, donors, and influencers, and the authorities decided they weren't a threat and shouldn't be treated like some sort of lawless mob. Which, well, yeah, I think you get it. And that brings us to our final point of whether or not this represents any broader threat. There are obviously levels to the Stop the Steal movement. Clearly, some people came to D.C. on January 6th ready and willing to do battle. Others did not. It's also clear some people just wanted to use the stop the steal rhetoric to raise funds and push some restrictive laws, but didn't really think they were going to overturn the election. But some really did think they were going to overturn the election. But just because it's a complex whole doesn't mean it isn't a concerning one. All involved were willing to participate in a clearly fraudulent, racist, and at times McCarthyite campaign to overturn an election for extreme right-wing ends. The same people enthusiastically participate in voter suppression campaigns, the fake critical race theory panic designed to censor school curriculums, and the enthusiastic backing of extreme law and order measures and associated vigilante violence. In other words, it's a movement to impose an elite agenda on the country by limiting democratic space, banning books, and increasing the power of cops and armed vigilantes to crack down on protests and oppressed communities. Hmm, where have I heard that before? That doesn't seem dangerous to you. Well, I don't know what else to say. The rise of these movements is not random. It's a response to the decline of capitalism. Capital needs to prevent workers from gaining anything to keep its profit margins high. But ultimately, that agenda is at odds with majority rule. So in that case, it's majority rule that has to yield, not capital. We've seen this before in the U.S., most notably during Reconstruction, where it worked, and in the mid-30s, where it didn't. When representative democracy threatens elite right-wing agendas, they often turn to attempts to narrow the franchise and engage in violence to displace their opponents. Confronted with a similar juncture here, what will we do? Obviously, the liberal answer is inadequate. It looks to the U.S. government as our savior and existing representative democracy as a virtue. Clearly, 
However, it's exactly the fact that U.S. democracy is primarily democracy for the rich that has led us here, that has created the policies that have caused everything from climate change to deindustrialization to wage stagnation to mass migration that has created the space for the far right to grow and the interplay between the rise of law and order politics and formal policing that creates the perception that this giant right-wing movement coming to the Capitol with people saying they were ready to do violence and even die was somehow not a threat. January 6th really has to be seen as a clarion call, a turning point. Will a mass politics of working poor and oppressed people emerge to offer real solutions to the same challenges and whether or not that movement will challenge the emerging far-right, semi-fascist, and actual rising fascist threat at the ballot box and on the streets? If not, January 6th is set to be a different sort of turning point where the mixed bag of right-wing forces coheres, strengthens, and smashes its way to victory. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 